0: Welcome back to another episode of Koholet. I'm very excited to share this episode with you. Today we're going to be covering chapter 16 of Dr. Grudem's book, Systematic Theology, and we're going to end up breaking this episode down into two. Today we get to discuss an aspect of theology that very personally is near and dear to my heart. Today we're going to be talking about God's providence. And as we discuss God's providence, I hope that by the end of these episodes that your understanding of God will grow really exponentially. And as a result of these particular episodes, you'll come to trust God more and love him more. Um, I think this is a very beautiful aspect of the character of our God that we learn about him from scripture, probably other than the subject of God's love. I would say there's really no point of Christian doctrine that has more power to fill the heart of the Christian with assurance and peace than this particular doctrine, doctrine, the doctrine of providence. So my prayer for you as you listen to this episode is simply that God would fill your heart with peace and also with assurance and confidence in who he is, that God would calm... Uh, feelings of worry and anxiety as you think about him and how he rules and governs over his creation, that God would ultimately overshadow your feelings of powerlessness with his providential goodness. So as we begin to talk about God's providence, we're building on the already established truth that God is the all-powerful creator. God is omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful. And therefore, he preserves and governs everything in the universe. That's part of his providence. And although the word providence doesn't show up in scripture, it's still a really helpful word to summarize God's relationship to his creation. So it's a bit like the word trinity. The trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, but it gives us good language to discuss the character and nature of God. So rightly understanding God's providence helps us avoid four errors in thinking about God. First, we avoid the error of deism, that God simply created the world and then abandoned it to his own devices. When we use the word deism, a lot of people think of kind of the watchmaker God who made this thing that is the universe and then set it free to go and operate without any personal involvement in that world. We're going to avoid that error. Second, in studying God's providence, we avoid the error of pantheism. Pantheism is the idea that creation is some part of God, but he's not over it. He's not outside of it. It's it's an aspect of him. God's providence actually means that God is actively involved in governing creation at each moment, but he remains distinct from creation. Creation is not a part of him. He's outside of it, but he lovingly, uh, providentially cares for it and oversees it. The third error that we avoid by understanding the biblical teaching on God's providence is that events in creation are not determined by chance or randomness. Proverbs 16.33 declares that even the casting of the lot is determined by God. Our equivalent of that would be like the roll of the dice. Even the outcome on the roll of a dice is actually determined by God, is what Proverbs 16.33 teaches us. The fourth error that God's providence overcomes is belief in fate or determinism. Um, That idea would claim that there's this impersonal universe, and that impersonal universe just determines the destiny of people. Rather, God's providence teaches us that a loving personal God who's infinitely powerful, presides and rules over every human life and over every event that unfolds in this creation that God has made. So here's our definition of God's providence as given by Dr. Grudem on page 420 of his book. God's providence means that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way That he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And he directs all things to fulfill his purposes. That's a huge definition. So let me read that again. And we're going to break it down into a, a number of different parts. So don't don't worry. God's providence means that God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And he directs all things to fulfill his purposes. Now, this is a weighty, deep, deep doctrine. Dr. Grudem spends many pages discussing God's providence, and uh, this is just the very tip of the iceberg. Lots of theological work has been done on this topic. But we can briefly restate the definition that I've given with three words, preservation, concurrence, and government preservation, concurrence, and government. And we'll explore each of those in more detail. But if you're paying close attention, then you may already be a little squeamish with the definition that I offered here. And that's because this can be a subject that intersects with man's free will. And as a result, it can be a very challenging topic. Some people struggle with some of the concepts that we're going to talk about today. And we're going to have to press into some of that discomfort in order to talk about God's providence And so this episode is also going to set the stage for our later discussion about God's sovereignty and man's free will when it comes to even the things like soteriology, which is the Christian doctrine of salvation. So let me give two little caveats here at the beginning. First, there's been a lot of disagreement about these subjects through the course of the church, and I want to recognize that reality It's quite possible that by the end of these two episodes on God's providence, you may disagree with some of the things that are taught here. Our goal is to present the information, uh, to state our position, and also to state another position. And then what happens from there is really up to you to weigh through the kind of evidence that we produce for you to land on your own position. The position I hold to, which is also the position Dr. Grudem holds, is what's called the reformed position, or another word for it would be the doctrines of grace, or how I'm going to continue to refer to it throughout these episodes is the Calvinistic view. And I'll be honest and tell you, I actually hope that I can persuade you to agree with my position. I think Dr. Grudem presents a lot of really good evidence, and his desire would be to persuade you as well. We hold the position because we believe it's biblical. We believe that it's taught and supported by the scriptures, but we're not going to pretend like it's the only view. So we will uh, present some evidence for the other side as well. And then again, you can go and do your own work by further studying God's word to see for yourself. Um, I went through a process in my own life that I'll share towards the end of the second episode about weighing the evidence for myself. That was a very meaningful process. And so I really hope that you'll go do kind of some of your own research by looking at God's Word. When when I say research, I don't mean Google. I mean going to the source text, which is God's Word, to see for yourself whether the things that we teach about this topic are actually biblical. And if you really, really want to go deeper into the subject matter, then I would highly recommend to you a recently released book by John Piper called Providence. And it's an excellent book. And um, it's several hundred pages long. So it will go into more detail regarding some of the questions and problems that we encounter as we go through this episode. But phenomenal book. And uh, it would definitely help kind of round out your understanding of this topic. In that book, John Piper actually offers another definition of God's providence that I think is really helpful. And so I want to read that definition for you as well. He says, We believe that God, from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. We believe that God upholds and governs all things, from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, and from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accordance with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, Yet, in such a way that he never sins nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the immoral accountability of all persons created in his image. That's a great definition. If you want to hear it again, you can just back up a few seconds and listen to it over. So, let's uh, delve deeper into God's providence by discussing. The first of those three words that I gave you which is the word preservation. We can define preservation like this. God keeps all created things existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Hebrews chapter 3 or chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. And Colossians 1:17 Tells us that in Christ all things hold together. So ponder that for a minute. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power, and in Christ all things hold together. And then Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6 declares, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worship you. The clear teaching here is that the universe and the earth and the people who populate it are not self-existent. Rather, everything in all of creation from individual people to the earth to the universe as a whole are utterly dependent upon God for their existence. So if ever there was a moment where Christ Jesus ceased to hold all things together by his power, everything except the triune God would instantly stop existing. Or we could even get a little bit more personal, and we could say that if at any moment Christ Jesus ceased to hold you in his thoughts, you would instantly stop existing. So God in his infinite omniscience, knowing all things, his infinite mind, were to ever stop considering your existence, then your existence would cease. How's that for a beautiful doctrine about how God actually thinks about you? He thinks about you so intimately that his thinking about you is what keeps you in existence. So this means even the breath in your lungs and the beating of your heart happens not because of natural causes, but because God wills it in cooperation with natural causes. As Job 34, verses 14 through 15 says, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. That's Job 34, verses 14 through 15. But God not only preserves all things by his providential love, he's also the cause of all things maintaining their properties. So, atoms behave like atoms because God preserves their properties as atoms. Water behaves like water because God preserves it as water. Cows never become people. Galaxies never become trees. Because God preserves cows and galaxies as distinct things. And he preserves each thing according to the purpose for which he created it. So here we can take a small detour to discuss that science itself is dependent upon this fact. Modern science, as we know it, grew out of the uh, the Christian tradition precisely because the Bible teaches that God preserves everything, and God gives everything an order, and God Himself maintains that order. Because God preserves creation, then we can study it and formulate scientific laws. That accurately reflect the way in which God preserves and orders His creation. So it's kind of ironic that science today uh, denies that there is a God, and yet science owes even its own entire existence to God's providential care for creation. It's beautiful, really. So that was preservation. The next part of our definition for God's providence deals with concurrence. We can define concurrence like this God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Let me read that one again. Concurrence means that God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. This is where things are going to begin to get a little tricky. But in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, we're told that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. The Greek word that's used here uh, conveys the idea that God actually brings about all things according to his will. When it says God works all things according to the counsel of his will, It really means that he brings these things about. So we can say that not a single thing occurs in all of creation apart from God's providential involvement. Now, this is definitely not a fact that you would accept as true unless scripture taught that it was true. And unless the Holy Spirit was giving you the divine wisdom you need to accept it as true, and honestly, even then, many people who call themselves Christians really struggle with this doctrine, that God actually brings about all things according to his will. And we're going to deal with some of those difficulties a little bit later. But first, let, let me give some of the scriptural evidence that supports this idea that God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. Let's begin with inanimate creation. That is, let's deal first with God's providence over the parts of creation that are not alive. So, inanimate means not living. We might think of these things as merely natural occurrences, but scripture teaches us that God is actually the cause of these things. So, Psalm 148, verse 8 says, Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. So why does fire happen and hail come and snow and mist form? Why do stormy winds come? Well, they come because God declares that they should. He is providentially sovereign over the things that they do. Or we've got a couple passages from Job uh, chapter 37 verses 10 through 13 is where I'll zoom in. We read there, For to the snow, God says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction, or for his land, or for love, he causes it to happen. Psalm 137, verses 6 through 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Even something that we think is totally automatic in creation, something like the sunrise, Jesus attributes the rising of the sun to God himself when he says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God is providentially at work in concurrence with his creation, with inanimate objects. But we're also taught that God is the one who is at work in cooperation even with living creatures. So we can talk about the wild animals. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly father feeds them. And Jesus claimed that even the death of a sparrow is something that happens with God's involvement in Matthew chapter 10, 29. So natural events and events in the lives of of the animals, God is actively working in all those things. You might look out your window and see a bird uh, plucking at the ground to get some seed to eat, and the bird is acting in that to feed itself, and yet scripture also teaches us that it's God, our Heavenly Father, who feeds all of the creatures on earth. And even things that we would typically consider to be random or chance, scripture says there is no randomness or chance. God is at work determining even those things. So I already mentioned Proverbs sixteen thirty three, which says that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even the flip of a coin or the toss of a dice, God is at work to determine even those things. So God works in cooperation with his creation to bring about events. God did not just make the universe and wind it up and set it in motion and then go away. No, he's intimately involved with every single event and activity taking place in creation. Now, where the idea of concurrence and God's providence becomes more controversial is when we step into the subject of humans and the exercise of our will. So it's one thing to say, you know, God makes the rainfall and God feeds the birds, But we're kind of escalating to a whole other level when we say that God is actually in cooperation with man in each of our choices so that we don't even act independently of God. And the Bible does not shy away from teaching us that even in human actions, God is still involved. And he's not involved in just a small way. He's actually completely involved. Dr. Grudem says, The Bible affirms that events are entirely caused by God, yet we know that in another sense, events are entirely caused by factors in creation as well. Both of those things are true because the Bible teaches and affirms both of them. Let me read a longer portion of Dr. Grudem's work at this point because I think he says it so well. If you're trying to follow along in the book, this is from page 425. Dr. Grudem writes, The doctrine of concurrence affirms that God directs and works through the distinctive properties of each created thing so that these things themselves bring about the results that we see. In this way, it is possible to affirm that in one sense, events are fully 100% caused by God and fully 100% caused by the creature as well. However, divine and creaturely causes work in different ways. The divine cause of each event works as an invisible behind-the-scenes directing cause, and therefore could be called the primary cause that plans and initiates everything that happens. But the created thing brings about actions in ways consistent with the creature's properties, ways that can often be described by us or by professional scientists who carefully observe the processes. These creaturely factors and properties can therefore be called the secondary causes of everything that happens, even though they are the causes that are evident to us by observation. Now this would seem like a contradiction to us as we talk about this, but it's not a contradiction, it's actually only a paradox. So a contradiction would be to say, that we have free will to cause something to happen and we don't have free will to cause something to happen. So a contradiction is to state the positive and the negative and say that both are true. Well, you can't have a contradiction, but you can have a paradox. A paradox is something that seems incompatible and yet is still true. That we have free will that causes things to happen is true. And that God and his providential activity in creation also causes something to happen is true. And those are not contradictory statements. They're merely paradoxical statements. Now, at this point, we have to say that our goal in defining God's providence is to agree with and affirm everything Scripture teaches. And again, scripture clearly teaches that God is involved in every single intimate thing that happens in his creation because he's a loving creator. The Bible goes further and also teaches us that God is providentially in control of human affairs on a massive scale. God controls and directs nations. Job chapter 12 verse 23 says, God makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. And in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 to 35, we read, For God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So God governs nations on a grand scale, but God's concurrence and providence over creation also trickles down to our daily lives so that Jesus taught us to pray to God, give us our daily bread. Even as Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 gives us a command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So the Bible says that God supplies our needs. We're supposed to ask him for our daily bread. And yet the Bible also commands that we be involved in this work of supplying our needs by going to work and by working for our food. God is also providentially in control of the very number of days that we live. He's providentially in control of the day that we're born and the time period into which we are born And the nation, the state, the location where we are born, all of these things happen by God's providential action, as taught in Job chapter 14, 5, where it says, man's days are determined, and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. And there are myriads of other verses that say similar things, Um, For the sake of time in our podcast, I won't go into all of them, but we can actually go even further. Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Or Acts chapter 17 verse 28, which says, In God we live and move or Proverbs 20:24, 20, a man's steps are from the Lord. Again, there are a number of other verses we could discuss on this topic. And if you're really interested in getting a fuller picture, then you can look at Dr. Grudem's book on pages 426 and 427. But I want to state here that it's also important at this point that we guard against a really fatal error that could creep in when we begin to reflect on this idea. Just because God is the primary cause of things and is intimately involved in everything we do, that does not mean that we should deny the reality of our choices and our actions. So this is going to be a recurring theme through the discussion of God's providence. God is providentially in control of everything, but that does not leave us free to deny the reality of our choices and our actions, nor to accept responsibility for those things. Over and over again, Scripture also affirms that we really do cause events to happen. We have significance in our choices. These are very real choices, and they're choices for which we are responsible, choices that God will hold us accountable for. Dr. Grudem says, Just as a rock really is hard because God has made it with the property of hardness, just as water really is wet, Because God has made it with the property of wetness, just as plants really are alive because God has made them with the property of life, so our choices really are choices with significant effects, because God has made us in such a wonderful way that he has endowed us with the property of willing choice. Okay, again, this is a difficult doctrine, but the difficulty does not make it any less biblical. Again, as Dr. Grudem writes, Scripture affirms that God causes all things that happen, but he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices, Scripture does not explain to us. But rather than deny one aspect or the other, simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should instead accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of all of Scripture. So an illustration might be helpful here, and I don't think that Dr. Grudem came up with this illustration. It's one that I've heard uh, from a couple of different places. But we could say that in the play Macbeth, which was written by William Shakespeare, It's the character Macbeth who kills Duncan. So if we were to ask the question, who killed Duncan, it would be right to answer that question, Macbeth. Because in the play, Macbeth killed Duncan. And yet we could ask the same question, who killed Duncan? And it would be equally appropriate to say that it was William Shakespeare. Because William Shakespeare wrote the play. He's the author. And it was in accordance with his plan that that unfolded in the play. So in a similar way, we can say that God causes things in one way, as God, and we cause things in another way, as creatures. Now this is only an illustration. Every illustration falls short at some point. There are limits to illustrations. So we shouldn't go so far as to say that God does sinful things in causing the actions of his creatures, Nor does God approve of the things uh, that are bad. He does not delight in things that are evil or contrary to uh, his commands. Um, God delights only in what is good and right and true and what is in accordance with uh, his desires that are pure and holy and perfect and righteous. So this brings us then to the question of evil. If God, in some sense, Causes everything that comes about in the world, then we come crashing up against this question that has plagued mankind since the very beginning. What is the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does God actually cause the evil actions that people do? And if He does, then isn't He responsible for sin? Well, the fact is. Scripture teaches that God does indeed cause evil events to occur, and he causes evil deeds to be done. But Scripture never teaches that God directly does anything that is evil. Nor does Scripture ever blame God for evil, or show God taking pleasure in evil, or suggest that God is guilty of evil. So we must never allow ourselves to think that we're not responsible for evil since God is the primary cause of all things because he is providentially governing all things. Nor should we think that God takes pleasure in evil, nor should we ever blame God for evil. To hold any of those positions would be to hold a position contrary to the clear teaching of Scripture. A really great example of this is recorded for us in Genesis chapters 37 through 50. Uh, It's found in the life of Joseph. Many terrible things happen to Joseph in his life. Numerous people wrong him through their evil actions. Scripture never uh, condones those actions. It condemns those actions. And yet at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph can say to his brothers, you are Meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So in the Bible, evil men are condemned for their evil deeds, and at the same time, we're told that in God's providential plan, God intended these events and actions to accomplish his good purposes. Another good example of this comes in the life of Job. God seems to provoke Satan in that story at the beginning to actually go and destroy Job's life. And God even gives Satan permission to do Job harm. And that harm is carried out by various different causes. Job ends up enduring great suffering through that story. And yet in the midst of his suffering, Job rightly says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the text praises Job by saying, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job does not blame God for evil, although Job recognizes the hand of God at work through secondary agents. And so the Bible records that Job did not sin by attributing the evil that he suffered to God. I could go on and I could give many other examples of this kind of thing throughout Scripture. And in fact, Dr. Grudem does so over many pages of his book from page 428 through page 433. The Bible verses in support of this teaching are actually really quite overwhelming if you're willing to invest the time to go and investigate for yourself. But let me just summarize the biblical teaching here in a few key points. First, God uses all things to fulfill his purposes, and he even uses evil for his glory and for our good. At the same time, Scripture clearly teaches that God never does evil and is never to be blamed for evil. Second, in summary, God rightfully blames and judges moral creatures for the evil they do. Isaiah 66 verses 3-4 through says it well, These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I will also choose harsh treatment for them, And bring their fears upon them. Because God says, When I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Now, at this point, we might encounter a conundrum. If God wills that man do evil so that God's purposes might be accomplished, and God himself remains free from blame for evil, then how can God judge us for the evil that we do when it accomplishes his purposes? John Calvin has written extensively on this question, but certainly the Bible gives us all the answer we need when it tells us in Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 20, You will say to me then, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? There's the question, right? If God is sovereign and providentially in control of all things, and man then does evil, how can God find fault with the evil that we've done if it's his will that is always done? Well, the answer to that, as given in Romans chapter 9, is, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? So God uses our evil agency to accomplish his good, wise, and perfect purposes. And we are truly the agents of that evil, such that we bear full responsibility for our evil. And God is right to judge us for our evil. And because he is God, and there is no one who can find fault in him because everything he does is good and right, it's perfectly appropriate for God to do this, regardless of how mankind might feel about it. That's heavy, but it's biblical. So next, still working through this summary, we must affirm that evil is real. It is not an illusion, and we should never do evil because it will always bring harm to us and harm to others. And again, in Romans, the Apostle Paul asks the question that we might be tempted to ask. If God can use evil for good, then why not do evil that good may come? That's found in Romans chapter 3 and the Apostle Paul argues that this is a false teaching and he declares of those who espouse this false teaching, their condemnation is just. So the Bible never says that if God can bring good from evil and sometimes God even wills evil to bring about good, that we should therefore go and do evil. No, because evil displeases God. Dr. Grudem has a great quote at this point at the bottom of page 436, so let me just read it for you. In thinking about God using evil to fulfill his purposes, we should remember that there are things that are right for God to do, but wrong for us to do. God requires others to worship him, and he accepts worship from them. God seeks glory for himself. He will execute final judgment on wrongdoers. And he also uses evil to bring about good purposes, but he does not allow us to do so. Our final summary point here is this. We must confess that we really don't understand how God can ordain that we carry out evil deeds, and yet he holds us accountable for them, and yet he is not blamed for them himself. We, we, we can't understand how those things work together. Once again, I'm just going to quote Dr. Grudem here. He says, we can affirm that all of these things are true because scripture teaches them. But scripture does not tell us exactly how God brings this situation about or how it can be that God holds us accountable for what he ordains to come to pass. Here, scripture is silent. And we have to agree with Louis Burkhoff that ultimately, the problem of God's relation to sin remains a mystery. From here, then, we have to move to another question that comes up in this discussion. Are we free? Do we have free will? The real problem in discussing freedom and freedom of the will is defining what we mean by free. John Calvin here says it well. He says, man will be spoken of as having free decision, not because he has free choice equally of good and evil, but because he acts wickedly by will, not by compulsion. So if by free we mean, does man really make choices of his own will and agency? Then the answer is most definitely yes. But scripture nowhere teaches that we are free in the sense of being outside of God's control or being able to make decisions that are not caused by anything. Nor does scripture say, We're free in the sense of being able to do right or good on our own, apart from God's power. Yet, Dr. Grudem says that we nonetheless are free in the greatest sense that any creature of God could be free. We make willing choices, choices that have real effects. But a kind of absolute freedom, completely severed from God, that's simply not possible in the Christian framework. Because in our Christian faith, we embrace the teaching that this world is upheld by Jesus. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And by Christ, all things exist. And all things exist for Jesus. So a kind of freedom that's totally detached from Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power, simply not possible in the Christian worldview. But we are free when indeed we make a choice to do what we most want to do. And therein we encounter the real problem with man, okay? Our desires are bent and crooked. And so what we most want to do, what we freely choose for ourselves apart from God's grace is always self-centered and evil. At this point, I'm going to <clears throat> conclude our study through uh, God's providence for this episode. I want to remind you that if you ever have any questions or comments about anything that we discuss in any of these episodes, you can always email me, grady at maricopasprings.com. Um, even if I'm not the one who recorded that lesson, I would be happy to pass your question or comment on to uh the other elders who are helping with this study and give them an opportunity to answer it either by email or we are doing an occasional little interlude where we have a table discussion about some of the things that we've talked about. So we can always bring up your question in those uh, sessions of recording to discuss them and try and give you an answer. So again, if you ever have any questions or comments, please email me, grady at maricopasprings.com. We have got about halfway through this material, much more to come, and we'll revisit uh, several of these ideas as we finish out this chapter. So I hope that you'll join us again next week as we finish our way through teaching about God's providence. Blessings.